This is uh, Daniel's prayer. In the first year of Darius, son of Xerxes, a Mede by descent, who was made ruler of the Babylonian kingdom, in the first year of his reign, I, Daniel, understood from the scriptures, according to the word of the Lord given to Jeremiah the prophet, that the desolation of Jerusalem would last 70 years. So I turned to the Lord God and pleaded with him in prayer and petition, in fasting and in sackcloth and ashes. I prayed to the Lord my God and confessed, Lord, the great and awesome God, who keeps his covenant of love with those who love him and keep his commandments, we have sinned and done wrong. We have been wicked and have rebelled. We've turned away from your commands and laws. We've not listened to your servants, the prophets, who spoke in your name to our kings, our princes, and our ancestors, and to all the people of the land. Lord, you are righteous, but this day we are covered with shame. The people of Judah and the inhabitants of Jerusalem and all Israel, both near and far, in all the countries where you have scattered us because of our unfaithfulness to you. We and our kings, our princes and our ancestors are covered with shame, Lord, because we've sinned against you. The Lord our God is merciful and forgiving, even though we have rebelled against him. We have not obeyed the Lord our God or kept the laws he gave us through his servants, the prophets. All Israel has transgressed your law and turned away, refusing to obey you. Therefore, the curses and sworn judgments written in the law of Moses, the servant of God, have been poured out on us because we have sinned against you. You have fulfilled the words spoken against us and against our rulers by bringing on us great disaster. Under the whole heaven, nothing has ever been done like what has been done to Jerusalem. Just as it is written in the law of Moses, all this disaster has come on us. Yet we have not sought the favor of the Lord our God by turning from our sins and giving attention to your truth. The Lord did not hesitate to bring the disaster on us. For the Lord our God is righteous in everything he does. Yet we have not obeyed him. Now, Lord our God, who brought your people out of Egypt with a mighty hand and who made for yourself a name that endures to this day, we have sinned. We have done wrong. Lord, in keeping with all your righteous acts, turn away your anger and your wrath from Jerusalem, your city, your holy hill. Our sins and the iniquities of our ancestors have made Jerusalem and your people an object of scorn to all those around us. Now, our God, hear the prayers and petitions of your servant. For your sake, Lord, look with favor on your desolate sanctuary. Give ear, our God, and hear. Open your eyes and see the desolation of the city that bears your name. We do not make requests of you because we are righteous, but because of your great mercy. Lord, listen. Lord, forgive. Lord, hear and act. For your sake, my God, do not delay, because your city and your people bear your name. While I was speaking and praying, confessing my sin and the sin of my people Israel, and making my request to the Lord my God for his holy hill, while I was still in prayer, Gabriel, the man I had seen in the earlier vision, came to me in swift flight about the time of the evening sacrifice. He instructed me and said to me, 
Daniel, I've now come to give you insight and understanding. As soon as you began to pray, a word went out, which I have come to tell you, for you are highly esteemed. Therefore, consider the word and understand the vision. Seventy-sevens are decreed for your people and your holy city to finish transgression, to put an end to sin, to atone for wickedness, to bring in everlasting righteousness, to seal up vision and prophecy, and to anoint the most holy place. Know and understand this. From the time the word goes out to restore and rebuild Jerusalem until the anointed one, the ruler, comes, there will be seven sevens and sixty-two sevens. It will be rebuilt with streets and a trench, but in times of trouble. After the sixty-two sevens, the anointed one will be put to death and will have nothing. The people of the ruler who will come will destroy the city and the sanctuary. The end will come like a flood. War will continue until the end and desolations have been decreed. He will confirm a covenant with many for one seven. In the middle of the seven, he will put an end to sacrifice and offering. And at the temple, he will set up an abomination that causes desolation until the end that is decreed is poured out on him. But just uh, before Mark comes to open this to us, let's uh, come to the Lord in prayer. Let's pray. Father, we thank you that although you are a great and awesome God, we can come to you and speak to you now as a father, and you listen to us as your children. We do acknowledge our need of you in all things and thank you for your provision, your continued grace in our lives. And as we've asked you for forgiveness for ourselves this evening, so we ask you to have mercy on those who've turned their backs on you. We pray for our nation. It grieves us to see the way in which people carry on living as if you do not exist. Our Christian values are being replaced by secular values. And where there is good, the people take credit for themselves and don't give you the thanks that you deserve. Lord, open people's blind eyes to see the truth of the gospel, that they need forgiveness and it's possible in Jesus Christ. Protect us as Christians from the influence of the world. Help us to surrender all to you. We pray that some of the things that we might find attractive do not distract us from our love for you and that we're not tempted to worship them instead of you. Lord, have mercy on the community in which you've placed us. We we thank you for the holiday club that's taken place this past week, for the many children who came, some of whom are here this morning. Lord, we thank you for the fun they had, for all the team who worked so hard to make it successful. And we pray that the seeds that have been sown this week would bear fruit, and that we might see some of that fruit as they come to join adventurers, as they come to church with their families. Lord, as we come to your word now, as Mark comes up to preach, we do pray that he would speak clearly and faithfully. We do pray for us that you would help us to understand the truth contained in your word and help us to apply it to our lives as we seek to be the people you want us to be. In Jesus' name, amen. 
Good evening, folks. It's great to be with you all um, after a long week at the Holiday Club. Um, so we're into chapter 9 uh, tonight, penultimate uh, talk on, uh, from the book of Daniel, and then next week we'll um, bravely look at 10, 11, and 12 as we round off the series. But I hope you've been finding it helpful. I hope you've been finding it challenging. It's certainly been challenging to preach, um, but let's come to it together. Uh, if you remember back to uh, Daniel 1-6 to that we did in the mornings last term, the repeated illustration I gave us through those first six chapters was what's on the screen behind me. Where I asked you the question, do you ever feel a bit like a kind of red dot in a grey world? If you're a follower of Jesus Christ, do you feel in the minority? Do you often feel isolated? Do you feel like you're swimming upstream all the time? Uh, And it can be very, very challenging. And that was the repeated sort of running illustration through the first six chapters. Uh, And I've said a number of times, the first six chapters of Daniel can be summarised by thinking about God being the sovereign Lord over Daniel. Excuse me. Then we come to chapter 7 to 12, which we're looking at at the moment. And the repeated illustration, if you can just pop it back up, I think something's just gone wrong. The repeated illustration has been this idea of seeing with new eyes. We put these glasses on, didn't we? Uh, and uh, put these funny lenses in the front. There we go. And it's this idea that chapter 7 to 12 in the book of Daniel uh, help us to see that God is the sovereign Lord over the future. And as we seek to live for Christ in an uncertain world with In many ways, an uncertain future from a human perspective. These chapters are going to help us to see the world as God sees it, to see the world through spiritual lenses, to see what God is doing in all of the brokenness and mess of his world. So if last week we were thinking a bit about perseverance, the need to persevere, and we finished with that wonderful acknowledgement that we are secure in the hands of God, this week we're thinking about the need, therefore, to surrender to the God who holds our life in his hands. So I want to begin this evening by you taking your hands in front of you. I want you to think about your hands. Our hands can do all sorts of different things. Uh, Our hands can take up the posture of fighting. Um, Eubank and Groves had their big boxing match last night, the biggest fight of many months. We can fight with our hands. We can also protect ourselves with our hands. Um, We can point with our hands, either a direction or an accusation. Uh, We can say we're okay with our hands, thumbs up. We can say we're not okay, thumbs down. But particularly tonight, I want you to think of this posture with your hands. When you lay your hands before you, open-handed like this, it's a posture of surrender, isn't it? And that really is the posture of this chapter, particularly of Daniel's prayer that he is going to pray. So come with me to the beginning of chapter 9, and we'll just work through this together. In the first year of Darius, son of Xerxes, a Mede by descent... So by chapter 9, what we're doing is we're going back in the book of Daniel to chapter 6, Daniel in the lion's den. The king at the time was a Persian ruler called Darius. And we read here he's the ruler over the Babylonian kingdom. In the first year of his reign, I, Daniel, understood from the scriptures according to the word of the Lord given to Jeremiah the prophet that the desolation of Jerusalem would last 70 years. This is probably a reference to the 70 years of exile, where God's people were taken out of Jerusalem and carted off into captivity under the Babylonians and then under the Persians. And if you need reminding of what was going on in the exile, have a read of Jeremiah 25 and Jeremiah 29. So it was in this period where God's people were pretty desperate, and Daniel was asking big questions of God. Um, What's going to happen in the future? Is my life secure? What's going to happen to your people, God? We then read, verse 3, that Daniel turns to the Lord and pleads with him in prayer and petition, 
in fasting and in sackcloth and ashes. I think this is a very significant verse in the book of Daniel, because you may have noticed up to now in the book of Daniel, everything's been very fast-paced. The opening chapters we looked at last term, it was these foreign kings having these bizarre dreams. And then two weeks ago, we had the great beasts in Daniel 7 coming up out of the sea, this frightening prospect. Last week, we had the very bizarre image of this goat and this ram fighting with each other. Again, terrifying. Everything's been moving very, very quickly. And for the first time in the book of Daniel, here in chapter 9, everything slows right down. And we're caused to ask a question. If I'm going to see the world through God's eyes, if I'm going to see what God is doing in his world, maybe I need to slow down to reflect on who he is and who I am. And that's exactly what we're helped to do here in this wonderful prayer that I think is one of the most beautiful prayers in the whole Bible. And we see at the very heart of it, a heart of a humble man who comes to God in repentance, praying on behalf of God's people. So I want to spend the first half of this evening really focusing just on verse 3. I turned to the Lord God and pleaded with him in prayer and petition, in fasting and in sackcloth and ashes. Just have a think about that little phrase at the beginning of verse 3, I turned my face to the Lord. That, I think, is absolutely crucial if you are to have a rich and robust prayer life because that is what prayer is turning our face to the lord think about how the lord's prayer starts your kingdom come your will be done on earth as it is in heaven we're taught to pray by first thinking about who god is if you think for a moment about the way that you pray if i consider how i pray often i seem to bypass the first part of the lord's prayer straight into what i need Straight into Lord helping me. But actually our prayers are more powerful when we slow down and we remember who God is. And I put on the screen there a little highlight of three different names that Daniel remembers or recalls about the character of God as he prays to him. And they're three different names. Lord there is the Hebrew word Yahweh. It's the name that's related to God who is the covenant promise maker and promise keeper. We've looked at that a number of times. Uh, God there in verse 4 is the Hebrew word Elohim. It's the name of God as creator. And then, O Lord, in verse 7, is not in capitals. It's a different name. It's another Hebrew name, Adonai, that means Lord or Master. So as Daniel prays to God, he's reflecting on who God is in all his character. He is the promise maker and keeper. He's the creator of the cosmos. But he's also his master, his Lord, his friend. So prayer at its very heart is a right recognition of who God is. But notice as well, it's also a recognition of who we are. Seeking him by prayer and petition. And this kind of holding out our hands in this posture, it's a posture of humility, isn't it? Like the lovely song goes, nothing in my hands I bring, simply to the cross I cling. It's the posture of humility. And so when you put the two together, a recognition of who God is and a recognition of who we are, it helps us when we pray. Because in many ways, the root of all sin is a failure to recognize who God is and a failure to recognize who we are. I often find I'm pretty tired by the end of a Sunday evening. And over recent weeks, I've enjoyed going back on Sunday night and watching this program. I don't know if some of you have seen it. Um, It's a little bit contrived. You don't quite know how realistic it all is. But the idea is you get these sort of wannabe SES superheroes, different people who are all pretty fit. 
And they come on this program with these men who are a bunch of ex-SAS soldiers who are seriously tough. And they're put through a series of exercises and tasks over a period of a few days or weeks. And the idea is they're whittled down and the weak ones are rejected and eventually you get a winner. Or this year there was a pair who won together. Now I like it because it's kind of a, a bit of boy time just watching this mindless TV on a Sunday night. But I also like it because of the psychology in it. Because you've got these men and on the first week they're all there jostling for position. And you get the really big tough guys who at start look down on the perhaps slightly physically weaker men and think you'll never make it through day one. They're kind of gym junkies, they've got all the muscle. But interestingly, as the weeks go on, it's not just about physical strength, it's about mental strength. And interestingly, this year, one of the two guys who won it looked physically weak, but he was just tough up here. And so the whole point is, through the SAS selection process, it's about understanding who am I? Some of the guys thought they were way stronger than they actually turned out to be, but also thinking about who other people were. I think he's a real weed, he won't survive day one. He goes on to win the course. And as I've been watching the SAS program, I've been reflecting on this chapter, and it's helped me to make the link, because so often with prayer, if we fail to understand who God is, and we fail to understand who we are, then we are truly weak, because we're prayerless. But a right understanding of God and a right understanding of self will help us to pray. Just to sort of illustrate this and work this through with you, look down to the passage between verses 5 and 11, and we'll see this on view. Do you see all the examples where Daniel has a right understanding of who God is? He says, verse 5, the great and awesome God who keeps his covenant and steadfast love. The Lord is described in verse 7 as righteous. The Lord is described in verse 9 as the one to whom belongs mercy and forgiveness. As Daniel prays, he's thinking about who God is. But notice too, we also have this illustration or recognition of who we are. As Daniel prays, what does he pray on behalf of God's people? Verse 5 starts, we have sinned. Literally, we have trekked away from God. So it's the sense of a very deliberate and sustained rebellion. The kind of walking off in a completely opposite direction. We've acted wickedly and rebelled, verse 5. We've not listened, verse 6. Verse 10, we've not obeyed the voice of the Lord our God. Verse 11, we've refused to obey your voice. Daniel is reflecting on who God is. He's reflecting on who he is and his people are and their wayward, rebellious hearts. And now I want you to see how the two things are related. Notice the end of verse 7, we have committed sins against you middle of verse 8 we have sinned against you end of verse 9 we've rebelled against him when I forget who God is and I have too small a view of him and when I forget who I am and I have too big a view of myself the relationship between me and God is broken isn't it think about why Daniel and his friends were in exile in the first place it's because this relationship had been broken They'd forgotten the Lord their God, and they'd placed themselves on the throne. So actually, on view in this prayer, we have a wonderful example to us of how our prayer lives can be enriched, having a better, deeper, richer view of who God is, and having a more realistic and humble view of who we are. And so I think it's helpful if we are to increasingly see the world through the lenses of God, as it were, to see what he sees It's got to start with a humble heart of repentance. It's what the Puritans in the 18th century would have called broken-heartedness. 
And I think perhaps two, three generations ago, there was much a stronger, much stronger sense of brokenheartedness than there certainly is in the church today. And we need to repent of that. But notice also in this prayer, Daniel doesn't come to God and pray on the basis of who he, Daniel, is. We come to God in prayer on the basis of who he is. And we throw our weights completely upon him. That's why, at its essence, prayer is all about dependence. Do you see in verse 18, we don't make our requests of you because we're righteous, but because of your great mercy. That's a sobering reminder, isn't it? I come to God in prayer because he's a merciful God. I don't come to him because I have a right to come to him. Lord, and there's an urgency here with Daniel as he prays. Lord, listen. Lord, forgive. Lord, hear and act. And then the whole thing is summarized even more because we, we read at the end of verse 19. For your sake, my God, do not delay because your city and your people bear your name. For me, what's most humbling here in the prayer is that Daniel's ultimate motivation when he prays is certainly not for his kingdom to come and his will to be done, but for God's kingdom to come and his will to be done. The driver in Daniel's prayer is the glory of God. Is that the ultimate motivation in your prayer life? That God would become bigger and that you would become smaller? I find that a real challenge. So to help you think about the glory of God, I'd like you to just look at the image on the screen. That will mean different things to different people. But as it were, just spend a moment of quiet reflecting on your place in God's world. I wonder how that picture speaks to you. See, certainly a part of what it means to live for the glory of God is to live in light of who he is. One of the reasons I love being outside, particularly up the mountains, sometimes in the dark, is that you can look at the glory of God's creation. And for me, it's one of the ways he speaks to me and shows me that he is the creator and the sustainer of the world. It's not me. You feel very small and insignificant out in the wild. And to get a healthy prayer life, perhaps one of the things we need is a bigger view of God where our prayers are driven by his glory. And that was certainly the essence of Daniel's prayer here. But then come with me to verse 21, because in a sense, you read the first half of Daniel 9, it kind of makes sense. It's a wonderful prayer. It's a wonderful model to us. And then you get to verses 21 onwards, and it's really quite bizarre. Rather like last week, we had this ram and this goat fighting, and you're like, what's all that about? And the week before, these four terrible beasts coming out of the sea, what's all that about? I'm sure this week you're wondering, well, what are all these 77s and these 62 sevens? What's all that about? Again, why can't God or Daniel just put it simply? Well, let's work through it together, because actually, it's not a disconnect, a wonderful first half of the chapter on prayer and then a bizarre second half. But actually, the two halves sit side by side and come together, because these 77s are all about living a life of surrender, trusting in God. So let me help us to see that. Do you notice in verse 21, we're introduced to Gabriel. We first saw him in the book of Daniel in chapter 8. Can anyone tell me there are only three places in the Bible where Gabriel appears and each time he appears in a situation of desperation? The first one we had here in the book of Daniel. When else does Gabriel appear? 
Good New Testament, Mary, announcing to Mary about the miraculous birth of Jesus. And just before that, Zechariah. Didn't think that he would ever be able to have a son. And then a wife gave birth miraculously to John the Baptist, the final prophet. I think there's something significant there. Gabriel seems to be sent from God to speak into very significant situations of hopelessness and despair. And here's the first one in the Bible. He speaks to Daniel. And then we read in verse 24 of these 77. Some of your Bible translations will say 70 weeks. So sevens or weeks can be used interchangeably. Now, there's all sorts of speculation as to what this means, but um, I hope I can persuade you that at its simplest, these are simply periods of time controlled by God. Whatever they mean, think of them as periods of time controlled by God. God is the Lord of time. And we read here that 70 weeks or 77s are decreed about God's people and their holy city to finish transgression, to put an end to sin, to atone for iniquity, to bring in everlasting righteousness, to seal both vision and profit, and to anoint a most holy place. And you read that and go, well, that doesn't really help me. What does all that mean? But again, remember what we're reading. We've said this every week. In apocalyptic literature, keep stepping back. Don't get sucked into the detail because you get lost. Step back. What's the big picture? What's the big message that's being portrayed? And it's this. It's going to take a long time for sin to be dealt with, but one day it will be. So if you can't read that and understand it, just remember that much. Sin is going to take a long time to be dealt with, but one day it will be. And be encouraged that all of history, all of time, is in the hands of God. That's the big picture which you need to hold in your mind. And then we read on. Know therefore and understand that from the going out of the word to restore and rebuild Jerusalem, to the coming of an anointed one, a prince, there shall be seven weeks or seven sevens. Now again, you can read books and commentaries for as long as you like to figure out what on earth is all this about. My understanding is that this reference here to restoring and rebuilding Jerusalem is probably the decree of Cyrus, who was the later Persian king, who said to God's people, you can go back to Jerusalem and start rebuilding the temple. And the reference here to the anointed one is probably a reference to Jesus Christ coming in AD 30. You may may read it differently, but again, we're going to see why in a sense it doesn't matter. We then read on, it gets more bizarre, then for 62 weeks or 62 sevens, it shall be built again, but in a troubled time. After the 62 sevens, an appointed one will be cut off and shall have nothing. Again, what is all that about? As I understand it, that is speaking about the death of Jesus. But big picture, if you get lost in all this, and you'll certainly get lost when you read all the books on it, just think of it like this. The 70 weeks or the 77s refer to seven periods of history, 70 time periods of history, all of which God controls. That is then broken down into 69 weeks or sevens, which is 69 periods of history. Seven of them perhaps reference to the time between the exiles returning and Jesus' arrival, and 62 between Jesus' coming and his death. When you look at that, if you're sharp, you'll be saying, well, that can't make any sense at all. Because the time from when potentially Cyrus said, come back to Jerusalem, and when Jesus came, was much, much longer than the time when Jesus came and then he died. So what is all that about? And again, if you read all these commentaries on this, they'll confuse you probably. uh, And it's very difficult to decipher. My understanding of it, for what it's worth, is that most numbers in apocalyptic literature are symbolic anyway. 
And so the first error you make is to read every number in a literal sense. And I think that's where you get stuck. Perhaps this longer time period, though not chronologically longer, this reference to 60 time to whatevers, from the time from Jesus' death to um, his, his coming to his death, maybe it's a longer time period because it's about a concentration of what is going on in salvation history. It's a really important time. We don't really know. And then we read in verse 27 of one final week or seven, which I read as summing up the remainder of history from when Christ rose and went to being with Christ, uh, his father in heaven, to when he returns. But if that's confused you, if I've confused you, I'm sorry. But if any of this has confused you, let's step back again and remember the big picture. God is definitely not asking Daniel or us to play number games with him. This isn't some sort of cosmic riddle which you've got to kind of figure out. Because remember, the word apocalyptic means to reveal truth, not to cover it up and make it more complicated. I say this slightly hesitantly, but I think the error that many Bible scholars make, and you can see these errors when you read the commentaries, is that people can get so sucked into the detail, trying to interpret every one of these numbers and pinning it on a time in history and trying to figure it all out in detail, they miss the bigger picture. And they miss what apocalyptic literature is trying to do, which is trying to remind us and give us hope that God is the one who controls history. And through history, from beginning to end, there are different significant periods and different times where things and events will happen. But ultimately, all of history is in the hands of God. And so if you, like me, find it difficult reading some of this stuff, at the end of the day, don't worry about that. But I would encourage you, don't get persuaded by people who want to pin all these details and read little intricacies into history and saying this was this and this was this and this is going to happen in the future. Because none of us know when Christ is going to return. Not even the Son, only the Father knows that date. Rather than wasting our time trying to figure out all the detail, let's step back and remember the big truths. History is in the hands of a sovereign God. He controls history, he controls time which means that we are in the hands of a sovereign God. And that's got to be the big question and the big picture that is painted here in this chapter, even if some of the detail is confusing. But as we come to a close, let's just focus in on that last week or seven. The reason I'm persuaded that that is speaking about the remainder of history, the last days in which we live today, It's partly because of what we've seen in last week with the ram and the goat and the previous week with these beasts that come out of the sea. Though they might represent significant individuals in history who stood in opposition to God. As I said last week, they also cast a shadow forward representing ongoing opposition and stands against the living God. And we see that here. The prince, verse 26, the prince of the peace who is to come shall destroy the city and the sanctuary. That might be a reference to Titus, who was a Roman general who destroyed the second temple in Jerusalem in AD 70. And then we read in verse 27, he, and I think that could be Titus, it could be someone else, but it's also representative of all powers that stand in opposition against the living God, shall make a strong covenant with many for one week or seven. In other words, in the last days, there will be people who rise up and lead people astray, and continue to live in defiance against the living God. And we see that in our world today, don't we? And I asked us to reflect on it last week. Uh, Are you worried about the future? Do you ever feel insecure because of how volatile the world is? That final week or seven probably speaks of this sustained 
and growing opposition against the living God. But again, and this is where it really matters now, why did Daniel have to hear this? What's the point? What's the relevance of all this? And indeed, why have we got to hear this? Why are we bothering to preach on it here in Long Crendon in the 21st century? Or to put it another way, and this is really getting to the heart of what this chapter is all about, and indeed, all of the back end of the book of Daniel. If we're followers of Jesus, how are we to keep going and to keep trusting as we live in godless times? We'll come back to the prayer of Daniel to chapter 9. What did Daniel speak of the word of God in Daniel chapter 9 verse 2? How did he reference it? As Daniel prayed in chapter 9 verse 2, he saw the scriptures which he had in front of him as the word of the Lord. He says the words that God spoke through the prophet Jeremiah were the words of God. So what was it that Daniel was clinging to with all the uncertainty of the future? What was it that he was clinging to to give him security for the way forward? It was the word of God. And as you and I face an uncertain future, and there's so much we can't see and we don't understand, what are we called to cling to to give us security for an uncertain future? It's the word of God. And when you cling to that which cannot change, an uncertain future becomes a very, very certain future. Because God has spoken and he's told us we are safe in his hands. So how do we, friends, keep going when our future is uncertain? We keep going by doing what God's people have done ever since God's people were first established. We keep trusting in what God has said. Because as we read in the book of Titus, God cannot lie. And so when he speaks, stuff happens. I want to close by taking you to The Pilgrim's Progress, a familiar book written by John Bunyan. I want you to look at this image. I'll just step to one side so I can point at what's going on. In the, in the wonderful book, The Pilgrim's Progress, it's telling the story of a man called Christian. Is this working? There we go. This man called Christian who's journeying through the Christian life. Here he is holding his Bible. And at one point on the journey, he comes to Interpreter's house. If you know the story, this is Interpreter, the man who's set back in the picture. And I guess he's asking questions, interpreter, how do I keep going? The Christian journey so far has been tough. How do I keep going? And Christian is very discouraged because if you notice here, interpreter takes him outside and there's a wall. And can you see what is coming out of the wall? It's a fire. And the Christian, if you see here, is looking despondently at the fire because this is character here in the foreground. And can you see what he has in his hand? A big pail of water. And he's throwing a great gush of water on this fire. And Christian is turning to interpreter and saying, how on earth can I keep going in the Christian life? The fire represents faith in the Christian's heart. And he says, how can I keep going? Because the devil is here and he's just trying to extinguish my faith, extinguish my faith, trying to put out that fire, trying to persuade me to not keep going, to persuade me to not keep trusting. All Christian can see is the fire and the devil and his water. But then interpreter in the story takes Christian round to the other side of the wall. And do you see this other character who's just sitting quietly in the background? And what does he have in his hand? He has a little jug full of oil. And this character is pouring oil on the fire. You can't see him. But it's that oil poured on the fire that is keeping it burning. 
which means the devil can keep throwing whatever he wants at us to discourage us, to persuade us we can't keep going, to whisper lies in our ears. But wonderfully in the background, our sovereign Lord and Savior is pouring his oil of faith on our fire to keep us going. It was one of the great doctrines of the Reformation, the perseverance of the saints. Those who truly belong to Christ can never be snatched from his hand. And I hope and pray that that will be a great encouragement to you. We started tonight by thinking about our hands, all sorts of different postures. But this was the posture I wanted you to think about. Holding your hands open in humble submission before God. And as we come before the living God with hands like this, isn't it interesting that in a sense, but in a slightly different way, God has his hands like this too. But not surrendering to us, but instead cupping his hands and holding us. We closed our service last week by singing that wonderful hymn, He Will Hold Me Fast. And when we come to the living God in a posture of surrender, we're falling with full weight into the hands of God who will hold us fast, who will keep pouring the oil of his spirit on our life to enable us to keep going, to keep persevering, whether we continue serving God in Romania or we stay here in Long Crendon, whether God calls us somewhere else, it is God who keeps us going. One of my favorite verses comes in the book of 1 Thessalonians, chapter 5, verse 24, which says this, He who calls you is faithful and he will do it. You won't keep going as a Christian and I won't keep going as a Christian in my own strength because all I'll see is the devil trying to put out that fire. But you and I will keep going as followers of Christ because Jesus is pouring the oil of his spirit onto us by his grace day by day, sustaining us and helping us to persevere. And friends, that is the big picture of what is going on in Daniel chapter 9. Keep going, Daniel. Keep going, friends, at Long Crendon, because I am with you, and I'll never leave you. So be encouraged. Why don't you take a moment to reflect on that wonderful chapter? And in a few moments' time, we'll stand and sing a wonderful hymn to close our time together, which again reminds us of the character of God and encourages us to be fully surrendered before him. Let's take a moment of quiet.